welcome to Navigating the Spectrum. I'm your host, Michelle Portlock, and I am happy to be with you today. Um, I have a special guest who I am going to chat with today. Her name is Kathleen Reynolds, and Kathleen was diagnosed on the autism spectrum at the age of 32. Kathleen earned a master's degree in history, and she enjoys music, traveling, and watching baseball, specifically the Cincinnati Reds. So Kathleen, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So Kathleen and I have been getting to know each other, and I find her articulate and funny and intelligent and just a great person overall. So I'm excited for you to get to know her too. So I'm just going to jump right in and ask Kathleen, what was it like seeking a diagnosis as an adult? Really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's, of course, easiest to be diagnosed as a child. Um, Because when you're a child, you have fewer coping skills to mask the diagnosis. Um, The older you get, just the the more you learn how to function. Um, And that's whether you know you're autistic or not. True. Because you're a human being, you learn. (laughs) Um, And for me, um, especially being a female on the spectrum... And especially since I was level one, it's very, um, females present much differently than males on the spectrum. Um, And we tend to fly much lower under the radar because our social skills tend to be much more highly developed. And as far as diagnostic criteria goes, that tends to muck things up a little bit. Mm For us, um, my my dad is a speech pathologist. Yes, my dad, not my mom. And he um, actually worked with autistic children on a daily basis for years when I was a ch- child. But since I was born in 1983 um, and was growing up in the 80s and 90s, we didn't really, nobody really understood high-functioning, level one, what we call level one autism now. Um, and at that time, it was thought that the male-to-female ratio was 10 to 1. <laughs> and so my dad does have a fairly good understanding of what the autism spectrum looks like. Um, and once we figured out that I was on it. Um, when I was in my early 20s, he did a little bit of reading and went, oh, yeah, that would be you. Um, <laughs> and um, so that was that was pretty much all we did at the beginning because um, we didn't really know how to even go about getting diagnosed. It's hard enough as a child to get diagnosed as you've covered mm-hmm. in the in the past there can be waiting lists and um and misdiagnoses and mm-hmm. um all, all sorts of things but once you are an adult it it can be so much harder so we didn't even I was I was doing okay ish I had some learning disability diagnoses that we had sought out and that seemed to be good enough at the time, I mm-hmm. um, had been diagnosed with um, some not otherwise specified learning oh, disabilities. Oh, like PDD-NOS? Um, yes. Okay. And that stands for Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified, which is a very long name. Yes. <laughs> and um, that that covered my clumsiness, my, my uh, gross motor and fine motor Um, dysfunction. I was diagnosed with auditory processing disorder. I was also diagnosed with a um, very significant math learning disability, which um, is somewhat unusual for people on the spectrum, but that was me. And I was diagnosed as being somewhat inattentive, but not. I didn't quite reach the ADD diagnostic criteria. I was actually one point shy, wow. which, of course, the joke is that if I had focused just a little harder... <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, That's hilarious. Um, yeah, 
actually, it kind of is. So that was when I was 23. Oh, I had just, um, I was, I think, a year into college. That was all we got for a little while. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, we decided to go ahead and try to um, get an actual diagnosis because I was trying to get into a PhD program at the height of the recession, which did not work out because almost nobody got into PhD programs at the height of the recession. Mm. I was going to be in a much more intense environment. I had had some difficulty in my um, MA program with a couple of people who also had... I. I honestly think one of them was also probably on the spectrum, mm-hmm. but not quite as well adapted as I am, mm-hmm. um, if I can be so blunt. Yes, you can. Um, <laughs> and another one had um, cerebral palsy, and some people with cerebral palsy, a lot of times there are also some cognitive and social impairments that go along with cerebral palsy um, that are not related to the spectrum. That caused some real distress for me. I do very well with neurotypical people um, because I have learned how to navigate them. I do not do well with people who are not neurotypical because the they don't follow a script. <laughs> oh, that's really um, interesting. But that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so since they all have their own different quirks, I don't know how to navigate the quirks. Interesting. Mostly. There are a few um, non-neurotypicals that I can latch onto pretty well. Uh-huh. Um, but for the most part, if they are not neurotypical, I don't do very well with them. Hmm. My, my dad called um, a couple of his old college professors because even though my dad is much older he um, he served in the in the Navy first and then he he worked for a few years and so he was much older when he went to school so some of his professors were actually younger than him mm-hmm. were actually still working um, even though he was retired mm-hmm. and so he contacted some of them at the University of Cincinnati to get some names they all wound up re- um, recommending a neuropsychologist in Cincinnati he was really hard to get into but we dropped some names um, my mom said that we wanted him to do the at the time what was the Asperger's? Um, yep. It had not quite. We were right on the cusp of mm-hmm. changing to ASD, which was in 2013. Is when the official right. This would have been 2012. Yeah, that's. He, this is, and this is just an example of how hard it can be to even get somebody to do the test. Mm-hmm. Um, we went in, and he did not. He wouldn't do the test. He did a general psychiatric eval. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was this whole panel. Um, he had me do, I don't remember what it's called, it the Wilshire yeah, something, or, something or other. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a multi, multi-page thing that they, they have you do um, to, to screen for like 50 different psychiatric conditions. Like wow. it's crazy. And then he had, he did a, a, an IQ test as well. Um, some other stuff, but he, none of it was an actual Asperger's evaluation. At the end of all of that, he said that he thought that I had some learning difficulties, which we already knew, and some anxiety issues, which we already knew. Mm -hmm. And I had a... An IQ that was, it was better represented by my verbal score than my Written. quantitative mm-hmm. score. Gotcha. Because usually it's, you take the two and average them. Mm-hmm. Um, my quantitative score was much, much lower than my, than my than your verbal. verbal score, which is usually how they diagnose a learning disability. Mm-hmm. So that, again, was positive. That was the second time I had that. 
and my verbal score is close to 140, which is high. Yeah, that is high. He said that he thought that was more accurate of my overall ability to process information, Mm -hmm. which is essentially what your IQ is. Mm -hmm. And then my mom asked him, well, we really wanted an Asperger's (laughs) evaluation. Do you, you know, having spent two days with her now, Mm -hmm. do you have any thought that she might be on the spectrum? And he said, he, without hesitating, said, oh, no, she's far too charming. Oh, wow. And I was, we were just kind of like, oh. And you are charming, but that doesn't, that doesn't (laughs) negate an autism diagnosis. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) but that's, you know, it's kind of proof positive of like the old school. The old school mentality. Right. And and especially the, you know, they're, they're looking for more of a a male presentation than a female presentation because mm-hmm. a lot of females on the spectrum will be very charming. Your daughter was very charming from the, from what I heard. Yeah, she is. Um, <laughs> if you meet a lot of men and boys who are even level one, not so charming. They are, and, and that's, that's not a negative necessarily. Sure. It's just, they're very awkward mm-hmm. and it's very easy to tell that something is off with them. Mm-hmm. They are much more easy to look at and go, I think they might be on the spectrum. Sure. Females, on the other hand, pass as neurotypical much more easily. Particularly high functioning. Right. Right. Level one autistic right. females. So then um, fast forward a few years. So that was when I was 28. Mm-hmm. So a few years later, we I was in the midst of a terrible breakup. Um, it was actually my first relationship ever mm-hmm. and had gone through, it was just a horrible breakup in multiple ways and I wanted to know whether or not I was on the spectrum and at that point I had a friend who was female she lived in Raleigh and she had managed to find a specialist who had diagnosed her as an adult mm-hmm. and a female adult. Um, and she also had a very similar trauma background mm-hmm. as me, which can also kind of cloud things, which we may talk about later in yep. a different <laughs> in a different episode. <laughs> my parents, fortunately, it, you know, my parents aren't wealthy, but fortunately money is not an issue when it doesn't have to be. Mm. And so we were able to go from for my parents from Ohio and for me from Missouri to um, Raleigh. And because we knew a patient of this psychologist, we were able to get in much quicker than we would have otherwise. Um, and because of the situation. And usually it's done in one day but she wasn't able to fit me in in one day so Mm. she kind of worked things over a three-day period oh wow did the autism at that what had that at that point Mm -hmm. changed to the autism spectrum Mm -hmm. um, diagnostic also did an IQ test with that which came out the same essentially as what um the neuropsychologist had said Um, She also did a lengthy interview of my parents, which will happen whether you're a child or an adult. Mm -hmm. And that can actually make it more difficult for some adults, especially if they're estranged from their parents. Gotcha. Which tends to be more common for children on the spectrum to be Mm -hmm. estranged from their parents than Mm -hmm. children who are neurotypical because a lot of things happen and <laughs> sure so that can make it difficult for an adult to get diagnosed if you can't um have your parents come in and talk about your early childhood development because that's actually yeah. a key diagnostic criteria and i'm I glad have, you shared that because i didn't think about that i have friends who have not been able to be diagnosed who i am positive are on the spectrum um who are unable to get diagnosed because they are not in contact with their parents. Mm -hmm. And that makes it difficult. So the need to be diagnosed, the desire to be diagnosed, 
is very real. Mm-hmm. And what do you think was the driving force behind the need and the desire? Validation, I think. Mm-hmm. Because for me, obviously, I function pretty well. I By that point, I had a master's degree. I was teaching at the university that I'd gotten my, my master's degree at. I had been living on my own for years. Mm-hmm. I was mostly managing mm-hmm. my stuff, my my mom had to manage a few things for me because Mm -hmm. there are some things that I could not manage on my own. Mm -hmm. I still can't manage. I mean, my husband has to manage some of the things that the wife typically manages Mm -hmm. in a relationship because I can't manage them. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is validation. Um, Just knowing that you're not crazy. (laughs) But that's a big deal. And just also, I would guess, understanding who you are a little bit better. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. Yeah, understanding like the why, the behind. yeah, and the the wiring of my brain essentially, yes. and uh, you know, even just hearing my parents talk about my early development, they said things that I had never, like I didn't realize, I hadn't heard before, mm-hmm. and in in a typical evaluation, they will go all the way back to infancy. Sure. My parents, I was the youngest of three children, but my dad is six of 14 children. So he spent a lot of time around babies, (laughs) 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 to say the least. Um, He was around a lot of nieces and nephews as well Mm -hmm. once his own siblings stopped being born Mm -hmm. um, as they were infants. And my mom was a typical... she was a typical teenager in the fifties and sixties, you know, babysitting a lot around a yeah. lot of a lot of babies as well. Um, she they knew what normal babies looked like. Mm-hmm. I I wasn't terribly off. Um I I wasn't you had a mom on in I think episode two who had a six month old who wasn't even holding a rattle yeah. who missed every single milestone mm-hmm. that baby but socially mm-hmm. I wasn't there right you know, as as far as physical development as far as intellectual development I was I was there mm-hmm. on every mark but as far as as soon as babies start interacting with which is you know four-ish months when they really start interacting with mm-hmm. other people my interaction was just a little off it wasn't sure. it wasn't wildly off it was mm-hmm. just a little odd mm-hmm. enough so that my mom was just kind of like and my dad was just kind of like huh all right she's gonna need a little more work mm-hmm. um <laughs> but not so much that they're like what is wrong with my child mm-hmm. you know again especially you have to remember this is 1983 sure so you know, a little odd is also what you're calling a lot of things. <laughs> a lot of things that are not right are being called a little odd in 1983. So <laughs> a lot of things get labeled a little odd. Um, <laughs> that should be really, you know, labeled something else. So I was labeled a little odd. And, you know, so I, from very early on, I remember, remember my mom pulling me aside like, Kathleen, you can't say that. Kathleen, you can't do that. Uh-huh. And I remember being so confused because mom would be like, what would you think if, how would you feel if somebody else said X, Y, Z? And I'd be like, eh, mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just feel like, this isn't working, mom. Aww. This method doesn't work because... What you're saying makes no sense to me right now. But, you know, it had its benefits. Sure. Because she pounded it into my head so hard that it took Uh eventually, you Uh know. And I remember being so embarrassed. But at the same time, I mean, it it did take. And I I think that's one of the reasons that I pass as neurotypical so well now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm as articulate as I am. Um, Even though I was already, I was always very verbally advanced. Um, I think I'm even more advanced than I would have been otherwise because mom was very um, on top of things. Mm -hmm. She didn't let things slide. Sure. Which has its pros and cons. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But finally getting that diagnosis, and I remember going through all of the diagnostics and 
the psychologist would sit there and go, huh. And I made sure that I had taken off all of my normal masking (laughs) devices. Sure. So I wasn't wearing my contacts. I also had taken off my glasses. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to stim, I would stim. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to, usually I... I will rub my face, um, or I, I will rub the bridge of my nose with my hand Interesting. If, as a self-soothing um, ah. thing, and I don't do it nearly as much as I want to. I only, at this point, if you see me doing it, I'm really, really overwhelmed, ah. um, but I did it anytime I wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Never, I pretty much never looked at her in the eye because looking people in the eye is an effort, Yeah. an extra effort for me. I didn't wear any makeup because makeup is, I do like makeup, mm-hmm. but it's also a masking sure. device for me. It's it's part of how I am able to distract people from what is really going on here um, mm-hmm. in my, my face. So I was just very, um, if I wanted to slouch on the couch, I slouched on the couch. You know, <laughs> I did everything I wanted to do mm-hmm. that was not socially acceptable, <laughs> which would, to some people, look like I was maybe playing it up, but I wasn't playing it up. I was taking off all of the layers that I always put on. Yeah, um, that makes sense. She... At times she would say, wow, I really wish you had come to me like 15 years ago because I know I like I know I could have diagnosed you 15 years ago. I know I could have because there would be like places on the test where it's just kind of, yeah, I don't maybe maybe it'll come out. Yes, maybe it won't come out at the end of the day. A like a psychologist with integrity has to go with what the test says. Mm We finished the testing. She gave me some solid diagnoses. She had overturned my bipolar diagnosis, which is a common misdiagnosis for thank people you for sharing on the spectrum. That. Thank you. I was going to share that um, myself, so thank you. I had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which made a, a thousand percent made sense because my dad's whole family has a bipolar disorder. Sure. His dad had bipolar disorder. Um, several of his sisters have bipolar disorder and more cousins than I can count have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So um, if it walks like a dog and barks like a dog, <laughs> but unfortunately um, for me, you were a cat. You were I a cat. know I was a cat, <laughs> but I really looked and sounded like a dog. Um, so it was a very understandable misdiagnosis. Whereas some of these bipolar dis- diagnoses really come out of the blue. Mm-hmm. So you kind of look at them and go, okay, but this is usually a family disorder. Where mm-hmm. is, where are the other family members? Mm-hmm. In my case, it really was like, Oh, I can completely see where that came from. Sure. But no wonder it took eight medications to regulate me mm-hmm. because I didn't have bipolar disorder. Yes. Um, it, by the way, it shouldn't take eight medications to regulate bipolar disorder. No. I was going to um, say, that is a, that's um, hefty medicating. Yeah. And it, yeah, my psychiatrist was like, this is, wow. The reason that, they stuck with the diagnosis and the reason that they had so much difficulty is because I I fit the diagnostic criteria completely. The only thing that was off was that I wasn't responding to medication the way I should have been responding to medication. Gotcha. So it that, you know, suggests that maybe my body chemistry is just a little bit off. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of things that go into treating mental disorders yeah. and body chemistry can be very difficult that is so true and just for you listeners one of these days i'm going to do an episode on medication Um, not that i'm qualified to medicate but there's a lot to know about medication so i'll i'll see if i can tap into my psychiatrist friend who's excellent so anyway that was a detour let's go back to you (laughs) so we um so she overturned that um because we had several years before figured out no i didn't have 
bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And she gave me an official diagnosis of level one autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I had on every criteria, on every, there are multiple modalities on the test. Sure. And on every modality except for one, I had um, at least met the criteria. Some of them, I blew them out of the water. <laughs> um, one modality I came one point shy of meeting mm-hmm. the criteria just like your ADHD test that right <laughs> <laughs> and that is where um when you have a test like autism spectrum disorder that has multiple modalities mm-hmm. that is where psychologists are allowed to use their own discretion gotcha and for her um because everything else was so solid mm-hmm. um, and some of them were way beyond diagnostic criteria she used her own discretion and said, um, you know, given your age, given your gender, given everything, it is my professional opinion that you have autism spectrum disorder and I'm not going to let one point on one modality of a six or eight modality test Mm -hmm. to to keep from giving you a diagnosis because Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. Everything else, if you were to average everything, like if you were to average all of the the results, Mm -hmm. you would more than meet the criteria. Gotcha. So she did end up giving me a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I um, was very relieved. (laughs) Uh, That's interesting. You found relief in that because it was like, like you said earlier, did you feel validated? Yeah. Okay. I felt very validated Mm -hmm. and I felt like, I felt like I wasn't crazy. (laughs) Um, And like everything that I had struggled with was, it wasn't, it wasn't a character issue. It wasn't a lack of trying. It wasn't, you know, whatever. It was literally my brain is not wired <laughs> to use slightly able, ableist language. My, my brain is not wired right. Gotcha. And that's how it, that's how it felt, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. That's how, like, that's how it felt. Gotcha. So to have that validation mm-hmm. that, no, it's how my brain brain is literally wired it's not wired the way everybody else's brain is wired Mm -hmm. that is that's how you came that's how you came that's (laughs) how it's wired that's who you are and I I mean I guess all I have to say about that is we just need as a community of people we just need to understand that that exists and it doesn't make someone less of a person or odd like we were talking about it's just how you came right and we just have to make space and create room to accept the differences that exist sure i think we're getting better at that and i think we've got a long way to go oh such a long way But definitely we've come further than the 80s and 90s. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. At least, I mean, at least I can get a diagnosis now. Mm -hmm. At least, you know... I mean, for my my dad who worked with autistic children every mm-hmm. single day to mm-hmm. come home to an autistic child and have no idea that he was coming home to an autistic child, mm-hmm. that is saying something that is. about the lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, he's a speech pathologist and not a specialist in mm-hmm. autism, but I guarantee you it wouldn't have made a difference. Sure. Wow. This is, this is so, I don't mean to say your life is fascinating, but... Well, it is. It kind of is. It's, no, you, you're allowed to say that. It is. Because they're your experiences. But, but I... You, you, I can be the goldfish in the bowl. It's fine. Oh, my goodness. So I have a question that's on a little bit of a different page. We're going to turn the page a little bit because you mentioned earlier that you're married. Mm-hmm. So what is is it like being married on the being on the autism spectrum and having that type of an intimate relationship mm-hmm. with another human being being connected in that way I mean for the most part it's is just life yeah. um mm-hmm. <laughs> but sometimes it's sometimes it's it's weird and mm-hmm. sometimes it's difficult mm-hmm. um which I, everybody could say those yes. exact things. But my husband is neurotypical. Mm-hmm. I He would say, for the most part, that most of the time he doesn't see it. There are times when he does. Mm-hmm. In fact, this 
past week, um, he really saw it. Mm -hmm. And it got scary for him because I was really struggling. He doesn't know how to reach me when that happens. Mm -hmm. And he he doesn't know anything about autism. Mm -hmm. He's just a normal person who has a degree in computer science and a master's Mm -hmm. degree in human resources Mm -hmm. and is, you know, a climber in the business world and was a confirmed bachelor when I met him and (laughs) knows nothing about anything related to the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Still really, still really doesn't. He's, he's not much of a a researcher as far as that kind of thing goes. So he'd rather just have me tell him what. How, and how does that work for you? For the, I mean, for the most part it works. Um, It would be nice if he read my whole diagnosis which he has no interest in doing (laughs) which I I guess I understand it is a lot of jargon Mm -hmm. for the most part pretty thick right so maybe he's saying to you hey just explain this to me right which which I've done give me the autism book for dummies essentially right exactly he's a dummy but he needs the shortened (laughs) notes and I would rather him read the 30 page report gotcha you know Mm -hmm. but that's also me I'm a researcher. There are other times when it's difficult because um, for me, I have learned very well to be open and to share what I need and to communicate very well, which does not come natural to me. And mm. his family never communicated. Oh. And so that's that can be difficult. Yes, it can. Simply because he doesn't come from a family that communicates. Mm-hmm. Because I have learned how to communicate and because I've learned how important communication is, mm-hmm. I, but I also don't necessarily have the, the intuitive communication skills. Most of them have been learned. Mm-hmm. It can be difficult to have the, the give and take and the, the understanding of when he, like, when he just needs to go mm-hmm. and when he... Um, when he can engage. Mm-hmm. And so we we have used a counselor to help with that, yep, which to help navigate that. is good. That is um, good. Um, even she has said that we're one of the healthiest couples that she's ever worked with. Wow. So it's not, I mean, it's, it's not like, and I will say this until I die, everybody could use therapy at some point and yep. every couple could <laughs> use counseling yep. at some point. It's not, a, it's not a sign that you or your relationship is in trouble. It's just, you know, we all need help at some point. Yep. Um, so... I agree. Well, I love that you shared that, and I appreciate your perspective. So here's another question. I know we kind of touched on this a little bit when we talked about your diagnosis diagnosis experience, but I am wondering what it's like being an adult knowing that you're on the spectrum versus being a child who didn't know. So it's... (laughs) It's a, it's a funny kind of almost cognitive dissonance because when I was a kid, I would do all sorts of really bizarre things, <laughs> and which, I mean, children do, okay? Yes. Children do bizarre things yes. because, I mean, I've told... Not I've told neurotypical children not to lick the trash can before. So, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you know, kids are bizarre. But, you, you know, when you're nine years old in the third grade and you realize that the entire class has stopped and is staring at you because you have your arm flexed and you're licking your bicep. Um, <laughs> that's odd. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not... <laughs> That's not neurotypical, I'm just going to say. I don't know what was going on there, but um, I do remember that. Sounds like a sensory, sounds um, like something sensory was happening. Apparently, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I really don't. But um, I just remember being, like, even sitting there going, what was that? Um, And just kind of sometimes being frustrated with like why why did I scream in the bathroom because somebody dared me to scream in the bathroom like that doesn't even make sense (laughs) why why did I do this why did I do that that doesn't even Mm. make sense 
So do you feel like as an adult, now that you've been diagnosed, you're having a lot of aha moments when you think back to your childhood? I am. Mm -hmm. I feel like as a kid, there was a lot of, I wasn't understood a lot as far as, like, I, and I didn't understand myself a lot, but also as an adult who understands that I'm on the spectrum, there there's kind of a, f- a flip there because I pass so well as neurotypical oh, gotcha. that um, I'm often very careful about who knows that I'm on the spectrum because mm-hmm. I have had people that have even known me for years as an adult who have literally never seen anything to indicate that I'm on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So when they find out that I'm on the spectrum, it's kind of like, wait, really are are you sure mm-hmm. or, so I have to kind of I have to say I'm diagnosed mm-hmm. on the spectrum because that gives more validity to it mm-hmm. as you know because otherwise there's a lot of questioning does it make you feel misunderstood when people question you or how do you feel about that I don't necessarily feel misunderstood it's just a no, really. <laughs> um, it, it's just more that I have to, I have to convince people. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't feel like it's a, well, you don't understand me. Um, it's just more, you don't see the whole picture. Okay. You're missing some pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's funny because then people who knew me as a child, mm-hmm who now, especially adults who knew me as a child, who then um, I see again and I'm like, hey, so I was diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And they go, oh. Click, click, click. <laughs> Everything clicks into place. Makes sense. Oh. Uh-huh. I had my sixth grade band teacher. I reconnected with her on Facebook and I, I messaged her um, a few years ago and I said, hey, does does this make sense to you? Like, does everything that I went through in the sixth grade, which I have a PTSD diagnosis from the sixth grade because I was bullied so badly, oh. which is not a, an entirely unusual with children on the autism spectrum. A lot of times right. they do end up with PTSD at that's some a fear point from it. bullying. Yeah, that's a fear that parents have for their yeah. children. Um, and sixth grade was my year for that. And I, uh, I asked her, I said, does, does that make sense now? And she's still teaching that that was her first year teaching. Mm-hmm. And so she was very young. And again, this was 1994, 90, 93, 94, no, 94, 95. Mm-hmm. So they, like, we still did not have that understanding at all. And we do now. Yeah. So all of the teachers, you know, who were teaching then, who are still teaching now, have had all of the continuing education stuff to, you know, Mm -hmm. update all of that information. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, oh, yeah, that makes total, that makes complete sense. And she's Mm -hmm. like, I never would have caught that then because we didn't know anything about that then. But if you had been my child, like my student now, I would have caught that now. seen it. Um, and so it's mm. you know it's very interesting because in some ways it's it's difficult now as an adult who passes so well as neurotypical um trying to <laughs> convince people that <laughs> sometimes <laughs> um and then other times like other times is very validating having the diagnosis for the sake of the child who didn't have the diagnosis you know mm-hmm. talking to people who I knew oh, back then you're kind of healing that child yeah, in you right oh that's really tender actually <laughs> oh, that kind of touched my heart <laughs> oh. was it a little mom moment there yes, it was it really was this is a good conversation for me so thank you um so I have another question for you. Do you feel like adults on the autism spectrum are able to live on their own? And when I ask that, I mean, 
independently on their own. And because you had kind of, well, I'm going to let you answer that and then I'll kind of Mm -hmm. add a few things into that. What do you think about that? It depends. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and, and I will say... It would probably be extremely rare Mm -hmm. that someone on the spectrum can live 100% independently. Gotcha. Now, what I mean by that Mm -hmm. is that they live entirely on their own and managing all of their affairs by themselves. Okay. So anything insurance or retirement account related, anything tax related, anything... Mm Anything, like, property-related, any of the, like, Mm nitty-gritty adult stuff that can be confusing for neurotypicals to manage, those are the kinds of things that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. It would be... I I personally don't know anyone on the spectrum. I do know a number of adults on the spectrum, and I don't know anyone on... I don't know any of them who are able to manage all of that on their own. Okay. I That's interesting because what you're saying is actually, I mean, I, I understand the not being able to manage it all on your own, but I would have thought it was more like the social emotional piece as opposed mm-hmm. to like the daily life routine type um, activities just because my daughter is a check the box and move on. Mm -hmm. And so that's been my experience with autism. It's not my own personal one, but it's hers and I'm learning from her. So that is really interesting and really good for me to hear because it just allows me to see autism is such a different experience for each individual. It is. But I like knowing that what you're saying of living completely 100% on your own would be very rare. That's really good to know. And I think that, I think your daughter will get there. She's only mm-hmm. 18. Mm-hmm. And for me at 18, <laughs> uh, I, like, that's very young to, mm-hmm. for someone on the spectrum to be living on their own like that in mm-hmm. a, you know, in a college dorm. Mm-hmm. And even so, like, for the sake of argument, she's still not, managing everything on her you know on her own she's still she's still not totally on her own yet right so it's good that she's like she's kind of on her own with training wheels so to speak you know so she's she will be learning over the next few years how to deal with it Mm -hmm. the social emotional stuff and i will argue that most people on the spectrum don't do well with roommates so she she has her own room like we talked about she she we knew that and we actually felt like for the sake of her own peace of mind but also her roommates Uh uh-huh because they don't oftentimes know what's happening when like maybe I call it unraveling I don't mean to be like offensive by that Mm -hmm. but like there's sometimes an unraveling that occurs and they're looking saying wait a minute what is this what's happening and that's really hard to explain to people but in her case she can go in and shut the door and be Mm -hmm. by herself and decompress right right and that's you know that's important and I my parents and I discovered early on that it was better for me to um, be slightly, you know, anywhere from slightly to moderately financially dependent on them, depending. Sure. And for me, a lot of it comes down to I'm also chronically ill, mm-hmm. um, which not everybody on the spectrum is. Some people sure. are, some people aren't. It's mm-hmm. just like other people in everyday, you know, everyday life. Some people are chronically ill. Some people aren't. Mm-hmm. And so if I wasn't, I would be more able to financially support myself. Sure. Um, but my parents decided that it was better for me to be a little bit more financially dependent on them sure. to have my own apartment mm-hmm. rather than having to deal with a roommate because I did better without having to deal with a roommate, even in a two-bedroom apartment. Gotcha. Because I just, I needed that solitude. I Mm -hmm. needed that control over my environment. And Mm -hmm. it's not for the sake of control. It's for the sake of everything sensory, everything emotional. Yeah, you're regulating yourself. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. And that is just kind of what 
we need. And like the, the world for us, um, as I've told you before, is too loud. Mm-hmm. It's too bright. Mm-hmm. It's too overwhelming. And I wish there is a word for it, but we like physically feel everything too much. Like mm-hmm. the, the clothes on our skin, the temperature, the everything we just, we feel it too much. Mm-hmm. And it's, we need a place where we can completely control the environment to be able to go in and just be. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is powerful. That's really powerful for me to hear, powerful for other parents to hear, because it's not our kids being um, needy, per se, or being selfish, or being... It's literally what has to happen in order to find a place of regulation, to self-regulate, like we were saying. And that's that's a really powerful message to share. So I was going to share this too. This is a really small thing. But when Kathleen walked in today, I am a hugger. And I and I, my two children who are di- diagnosed on the autism spectrum, they're not huggers. They don't want to be touched. They'll let other people hug them sometimes mm-hmm. because they're used to that. But for me, they will say, no, I don't like my son in particular. It's a fist bump or it's nothing. And um, so when Kathleen walked in today, at least I knew enough to say, can I give you a hug? And you know what? She said, you know what? I what like how are you? How do you feel about hugging? I I don't prefer it unless I really, really know the person and I'm really comfortable with the person. And then I'm totally okay with hugs. Okay. But Otherwise, I I prefer not. And what was funny is I was out. I was almost inclined to just say yes mm-hmm. because that's how we're socially conditioned. Mm-hmm. But because I knew the environment, mm-hmm. I knew that it was okay to say no. And I was so grateful you said no. I actually felt like. We had a mutual respect uh-huh. with each other because when you said that, I was offended 0%. Right. And I thought that is what's comfortable for her. And I'm giving her the space to feel that. And I appreciated you trusting me with that. So anyway, I just thought I would share that because it actually meant a lot to me that she was comfortable enough to speak her actual feelings to me. So I appreciated that. And I hope, my hope is from listening to Kathleen and listening to this podcast that what parents can take away from this is it's okay to lean into how your children are feeling and to give them the space to feel those things and to accept the fact that it may be a little bit unique from what we're used to. But also, we have to take into consideration that what our children and maybe even ourselves, what we're experiencing may seem, or um, how do I say this? We may think that what they're feeling is unique, but they only feel what they feel. And so what we're telling them is considered normal. That's unique for them. That's a different experience for them. And we need to be able to um, find a place of acceptance in that. It needs to be okay. And and I just, I just believe that we're all created in a very, we come uniquely human. And that, that that's, that's the beauty of mankind, of being human. So in me closing with those thoughts, I wonder, Kathleen, if there's something that you think I should have shared or we could have talked about that you think would be important for other people to hear? Um, I think, I know that the majority of people listening to this are going to be parents who are in, in the trenches, so to speak, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who are, who are dealing with the day to day. And I think the most important thing to remember is that you are you're doing your best. The fact that you're even listening to a podcast like this means that you are being proactive in trying to figure out how to better better serve your child and how to better raise your child in a way that will prepare them for life mm-hmm. and help them to live a better and more functional life. And 
I think that, you know, if, if my parents who did not have any idea <laughs> that they were raising an autistic child, <laughs> um, could raise their very much autistic child to be as functional as I am, I think that you, with all of your efforts and all of your resources, will do just fine. And it's frustrating. I know it's frustrating. I've seen it. I've lived it from the child's perspective, and I was aware enough, and I'm old enough now to be able to look back <laughs> and see the frustrations. And I know it's I know it's frustrating on both sides, but and it's hard and heartbreaking to watch your child that way. But keep going because when they are an adult, they will be so much better off for all of the effort and all of the blood, sweat, and tears that you have put into put into raising them to be who they are going to be. Mm. I love that so much. I have enjoyed this discussion that we've had so deeply. I keep getting goosebumps. And so <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, this is like a spiritual experience for me. <laughs> Glad to help. <laughs> so I just appreciate you being here. I appreciate all of the wisdom that you've shared. And I just want to tell those of you that are listening that if you need extra help beyond these podcasts, feel free to reach out to me. Um, you can find me on my website. It's www.michelleportlock.com and Michelle is with one L. And if you just need a counseling session or time spent um, talking with someone who understands the autism world, I'm here for you in that way too. So I'm passionate about this community and I have nothing but love and respect for those who belong to the community and those who love those that belong to the community. So thanks for listening and um, we'll, you'll hear from me again next week. <laughs>